All right, so this week we continue working through our timeline of the Reformation and the people God used to reform the church. Um, this morning we move from Luther and Wittenberg in Germany to uh, Switzerland, which is about 800 miles uh, south of Wittenberg. So this reform in Switzerland was led by a man named Ulrich Zwingli. Those who are somewhat familiar with the name Zwingli um, are probably familiar with it because of what they've uh, read about Zwingli and Luther um, and their disagreement on the issues of the Lord's Supper and the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So if you were to Google search uh, Zwingli, one of the first things you'll see is probably uh, Zwingli versus Luther um, on the Lord's Supper fight night. But that's not necessarily... <laughs> what happened, but that's usually how we've come in contact with Zwingli. Uh, but Zwingli's theology and his reform, and the reform he started in Switzerland, ended up actually spreading to France, England, Scotland, Hungary, and Holland. Even some parts of Germany adopted the teaching of the Swiss Reformation, or the Swiss Reformers. So the theological impact that Zwingli was making in Switzerland was a big one, um, and it actually changed the theological climate of Switzerland forever. And it's interesting because the Reformation in Switzerland had a political and sociological context that allowed this Reformation to even happen as it did in that area. So yes, uh, the doctrine of uh, sola scriptura, though not coined in that way then, was the foundation of the Swiss Reformation. But through God's divine, divine providence, this God who is God over all things, Switzerland was an area that was uh, ready for Reformation. When I say ready for reformation, this is what I mean. Switzerland was a nation that had a self-governing republic. So it had self-governing or autonomous republics uh, known as cantons or districts. And Switzerland didn't have a monarchy like France and England. So they didn't have one head of state. They didn't have a king or a queen or an emperor. They had districts, autonomous districts. And these two districts actually joined together uh, at, at one point, and it was basically to say, um, let's join uh, together both to uh, protect the Austrians or to defend the Austrians. But both of these areas were still autonomous. So Switzerland is sort of, uh, this area is broken up into two uh, autonomous districts. So why is that important? Why does that even matter? Because it meant that they had the choice of whatever faith they wanted to follow, so to speak. So each Swiss province was a free state. In other words, they were governed by their own civil councils or their own city councils, which meant that they were free to choose their own religion. So this was different from Luther's Reformation in Germany or Wycliffe in France or Huss in Bohemia. Why? Because this meant that each Swiss Republic could decide whether to follow the papacy at Rome or the teaching of the reformers. So it was distinct in that way. So that's why it was different. They actually had a choice. So that's sort of the landscape of the Swiss Reformation. That's why I say it was ready for reform, so to speak, and distinct in that way. Okay, so uh, Zwingli, the life of Zwingli. So other than Luther and Bullinger, uh, the most important early reformer or pre-reformer, was Ulrich Zwingli. So Zwingli is considered a first-generation reformer and the founder of Swiss Protestantism. So Zwingli is 
not as recognized for his Reformation work because it only lasted about 12 years. So he didn't have uh, decades and decades of reform and uh, thought around the Reformation like Calvin or Luther or even uh, Melanchthon and, and some others. But the influence of his reform in Switzerland went down in history. That's why we're having a Sunday school class about Zwingli 600 years later. It was an important time and the Lord used him greatly in this area of Switzerland. So Zwingli was born into, um, he was actually born two months after uh, Luther in January 1484, two months after Luther, in a place called Waldhaus. I think that's how you pronounce it. I have a picture of Waldhaus somewhere. There it is. Can you all see that? That's probably modern day Waldhaus. It's beautiful. Um, so he was born into a family. He had seven brothers and two sisters, a large family compared to today's average family. Um, his father was a chief magistrate, which means that he was a lay judge or a civil officer. So he served in the courts. And his mother was the sister of a priest. So Zwingli was educated in a Catholic religion uh, by his God-fearing parents. And in 1498, Zwingli's father sent him to the University of Vienna. Later, he enrolled at the University of Basel, and he earned a bachelor and master's degree. So he studied philosophical, or he studied uh, scholastic philosophy, astronomy, and physics, but mainly the ancient classics. And he became an enthusiast of the humanities, which wasn't uh, uncommon at that time. Um, he also cultivated his talent for music, so apparently he was a musician and a good one. So he played, some of the instruments he played might be interesting to you. Maybe you, some of you would recognize these. I didn't recognize a few of them. But he played uh, the, the lute, the harp, uh, the violin, the flute, the dulcimer. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I don't know what that is either. Um, and the hunting horn. And apparently he was great at all of them. I don't know what a hunting horn is either, but some of you musicians might know what that is. Um, after his formal education, he was ordained to the priesthood in a Roman Catholic church. And he actually bought a pastorate at the Church of Glarus in Switzerland, uh, the same church he grew up in. So in this area, Glarus in Switzerland, after uh, Zwingli graduated, he bought a pastorate. And yes, I said he bought a pastorate. I know that sounds weird, which it should, weird and wrong. But paying money to a prince for a church position was common, was a common thing before the Reformation. So that was just the norm, to, to pay money to a prince to occupy um, a pastorate in a certain church was just the norm. It would be weird if, Pastor Ron, I'm gonna use you for an example. He uh, came to our church and he said, hey, let me uh, pay the, uh, the, 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 someone downtown for a position at your local church we would say, brother, you are at the wrong church and you should probably find somewhere else to preach. That would be weird and wrong today. But at that time, it was the norm to pay a prince for a pastorate. So that's just the context of this Reformation. So uh, this is actually gonna sound weird too, but it's actually really interesting. He had to pay over 100 guilders. Anybody know what a guilder is? You wouldn't. Um, I, I didn't either before I studied this. He had to pay 100 guilders. So a guilder was a form of money before the euro in Switzerland. He had to pay over 100 guilders to a rival candidate. So 
he's sort of, there's Ron again. Ron is here, and he wants to pastor it. There's another person, Will, let's say he's here, and he wants to pastor it. Ron is paying $100 to Will so, to pay him off so that he doesn't have to compete with Will for the pastor. Right? Again, that sounds strange. I got 200. <laughs> 200, 200. Can I get a three? Can I get a three? No, that'd be weird. Inappropriate <laughs> for the church. But um, at this time, again, it was the norm. Okay, so it sounds strange, but it was the norm. So Zwingli spent his time preaching, teaching, and pastoring. He held to a humanistic philosophy of ad fontes, which means going back to the sources. That was big in the humanities, going back to the sources. Let's get back to the original sources. So he gave himself to study, and he actually taught himself Greek. Uh, and he did a lot of reading. He read and read and read. And something else you see in Zwingli that you see in other reformers is that he read and read and read the church fathers. The reformers knew the church fathers. They read the church fathers. Zwingli read other um, ancient classics too, but he read a lot of the church fathers. And he also read a lot of pagan philosophers and poets. Uh, so Philip Chaff, who is a great historian, he said that Zwingli, quote, perceived like Justin Martyr, the Alexandrian fathers, and Erasmus in the lofty ideas of the heathen philosophers and poets, the working of the Holy Spirit, which he thought extended beyond Palestine throughout the world. So what I think uh, Schaff is saying there is that uh, Zwingli recognized in poets as they said right things about God, God's common goodness to men. So it's more than that, but I, I think that's what he's, he's getting at there. Um, he was also really drawn to Erasmus with sort of an infatuation, which you'll see. So Zwingli had this, uh, this desire to uh, read Erasmus, to, uh, to know Erasmus, and he actually ended up meeting Erasmus. So it was, it was an interesting relationship there. He thought Erasmus was, this, was a really great scholar um, and a truly pious man, which Zwingli admired. So Zwingli actually went to meet Erasmus through a friend of his, and this is what he said about Erasmus. He said, quote, Erasmus is a man in the prime of his life, small and delicate, but admirable and polite. That, I don't know, why, I don't know how tall Erasmus was, but small and delicate was interesting to me. Um, I don't know if I would want to be called small and delicate, but either way. Um, Zwingli addresses Erasmus as the greatest philosopher and theologian, so high praises um, for uh, Erasmus from Zwingli. Though Zwingli wasn't officially a pupil or trainee of Erasmus, he was definitely influenced by him. So a few things that influenced Zwingli from Erasmus was Erasmus's high regard for the heathen classics, which I think um, gave Zwingli a uh, philosophy of God's goodness to the, the, the pagan world as they said uh, or came to uh, write conclusions about God. Uh, there's more to that, but I think he, that um, influenced Zwingli. Um, his opposition, another thing from, uh, Zwing, from Erasmus that, that influenced Zwingli was Erasmus's opposition to ecclesiastical abuses, which is good, his devotion to the study of the scriptures, and Zwingli probably got his view of hereditary sin and guilt from Erasmus as well. In other words, 
he would have believed something was left in the will of the man that was uh, redeemable or that was able to, along with God's power, redeem him, right? So we'll, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, Erasmus was synergistic in his doctrine of salvation, which means he ascribed salvation both to God and man. He wasn't monergistic, he was synergistic. And it was probably Erasmus that first suggested to Zwingli this figurative interpretation of the words of the Lord's Supper. So the figurative interpretation, by by that I mean that when Zwingli is reading uh, the Lord saying, this is my body, this is my blood, he's reading it as a figure of speech only with no present reality of grace served to the saint. So it's likely that he got that understanding from Erasmus. This led him to understand our experience of the Lord's Supper as, as merely memorial, as merely memorial, just a remembrance or commemoration of what Christ had done. But he eventually disagreed with, with Erasmus' understanding of salvation, that idea that God and man are working together, synergistic salvation, or soteriology, and he ended up a firm believer in predestination. So Erasmus, again, was very influential for Zwingli. During Zwingli's time as a priest, he served as a chaplain of young Swiss mercenaries. So Swiss soldiers uh, for hire at this time was very common. So they would um, sort of commission Swiss soldiers to protect certain provinces, certain areas, and that just became a norm. Um, And a lot of young Swiss men died during this time. In a battle of 1515, uh, 10,000 young soldiers died. So Zwingli serving as a chaplain to these mercenaries, he's seeing death and a lot of young men die as these, these Swiss soldiers, and it's burdening him. As he's seeing them die and he's, he's all around death, he's uh, building uh, this conviction about this system which brought money to the Swiss region but was costing a lot of young men their lives. So Zwingli eventually, as any uh, preacher does probably, he starts to uh, have these, build these convictions and preach against uh, what he saw as an evil system of these Swiss soldiers uh, hired for protection. So doing that within this area eventually got him into trouble and he had to leave Glarus. So because of political pressures and the sermons against mercenary fighting, Zwingli was forced to leave Glorus in 1516, and he ended up serving as a priest in a monastery called, in a monastery in an area called Eisendelen, if I'm saying that right. So um, <clears throat> Eisendelen, he, he uh, moves from Glorus, where he's preaching, to Eisendelen. So he moves to this area, Eisendelen, and it's a smaller area. It's not as heavily populated. Um, it's known for uh, a shrine of, to uh, the, the Virgin Mary in this area, which brings people, but it's not as busy as Glorus where he was. So again, as any good uh, priest or monk does, he has all this time, he spends it reading. And he's reading, again, a lot of the church fathers. He's reading a lot of Erasmus, and he's uh, informing himself on church history. He's reading Origen, Ambrose, Jerome, Chrysostom, Augustine, those, those church fathers. So he's given himself to that. And he actually copies Erasmus's Greek New Testament by hand, which I think um, Huss did of uh, Wycliffe. 
copied his, his works by hand. It's very interesting there. Um, while he was preaching in Eisendellen, he came to be a very popular preacher. So he started attacking some of the abuses in the church, specifically the sale of indulgences, and his preaching started to have a stronger um, evangelical tone, um, which, is, uh, which, is, which was true of Zwingli, and which is why there was this sort of, he started to, as he preached with a more evangelical tone, although that was true, he wasn't really seeing that, at this time at least, that the church needed to be uh, reformed from sort of the inside out, that the whole structure needed to really have a reform take place. But he just so, sort of identified things and said, well, this, we can sort of talk about this needing to be changed. That maybe needs to be changed. But it wasn't something that he viewed as the institution needs to be addressed. The whole moral system needs to be sort of dealt with. Um, and he didn't think the whole institution of the church needed to be sort of torn down and rebuilt again. But it's interesting, though, up until this point in Zwingli's teaching, he primarily relied on the church fathers even more than the scriptures. But something happened in 1518 that I think started to turn Zwingli, something that started to uh, change his mind and open his eyes to a deeper need for reform that I don't think was there before. And I think it was uh, this. After spending time in Eisendellen, Zwingli started ministering in Zurich. Um, so Zurich was a well-known and influential uh, area, and Zwingli was well-known and influential in Zurich. He sort of uh, came to be known as the people's priest. Uh, when I read that, I thought about um, weird, The Rock, and he was like the people's champ. I didn't really watch wrestling, but I did know that. Um, he was sort of like the people's priest, so he was well-known, he was influential, people loved him, and they loved to hear his, his teaching. Um, <clears throat> and it was here that Zwingli started a new preaching schedule that was different from the average church preaching schedule. So he goes from Glorus to Eisendellen, Eisendellen to Zurich, and something happens, I think, in his mind, or is happening, uh, as he starts this new preaching schedule. So as opposed to following the standard church calendar, he decided to preach book by book through the New Testament. Um, Zwingli, when he was 35, started a series of expository sermons through Matthew, which came out of his exegesis of the Greek text. So this was very different. Uh, he continued this consecutive and very different style of preaching for the next six years until he actually preached through the whole New Testament. So when a priest would enter a church and he would preach there, there would be somewhat of a church calendar that they would determine, okay, this is what we're preaching at this time. Zwingli decided, okay, I'm going I'm to break away from that, uh, that style of government and preaching, and he just decides to preach book by book through the New Testament. And I think it was this that the Lord used. As Zwingli week by week studied and expounded the scriptures, it sort of became this blazing sun that shined a light on the dark corruption and wickedness that sort of hid in the corners of the Roman Catholic Church. And I think it was this, and at this time, that true reform began. Interesting, as he's preaching expositorily through the Word of God, book by book. Um, <clears throat> that same year Zwingli started his expository preaching through the New Testament, Zurich, this area which he served, was actually 
struck with an outbreak of plague. And again, I think that happened with Wycliffe. So it's just sort of, as I've been moving through these reformers, it's interesting to see things that are so similar in God's providence even as in the lives of these different, different reformers. There are a lot of things that they had in common. So outbreak, uh, plague breaks out in Zurich where Zwingli is teaching. 2,000 of the 7,000 citizens die. So Zwingli serving as a um, chaplain to mercenaries, he's not unfamiliar with death. He's seeing soldiers die on a regular basis. But now outbreak, plague breaks out in Zurich. And Zwingli decides, sort of council costs, so to speak, and he decides to stay and serve in Zurich during this outbreak, during this plague. So people are dying around him. He's still trying to serve them. He's still trying to share the word of God with them and serve them. Um, but he's not immune. He actually gets sick himself, and he gets struck with a disease, and he's down for six months. So he wasn't immune to calamity. And as I was working through this, I thought to myself, and I, at this time, I don't think uh, Zwingli is regenerated, which I'll talk about in a sec, but it's interesting that a lot of times when we think about serving uh, and doing uh, these things for the Lord, we expect that there won't be calamity. We expect well-being because we are giving ourselves to godly things. But you just don't see that uh, in the Bible. You don't see it in the Reformers. You see men serving, and you see uh, God giving men grace to serve, and you see it alongside calamity. You see things happening to their, their bodies, things happening to their churches, but the Lord is still preserving them as he promises to do. But it's not preservation um, away from calamity, away from the evil in the world, but it's actually the preservation uh, that they would say, it is well with my soul still in the midst of controversy and calamity. And as we'll see, Zwingli had uh, a lot of controversy and calamity. Um, okay, <clears throat> where did I stop at? All right, so Zwingli continues to serve in this area in Zurich, get, gets hit, hit with a plague, is down for three months. Uh, the Lord uh, recovers him. And some scholars who study Zwingli and are given to the study of his life would say that it was actually this plague that struck Zwingli that they would say, or this disease that struck, struck Zwingli, that they would say it was then that he was probably regenerated. It was then that he was probably truly saved. So I'm, I'm talking about things that Zwingli's doing and ways that he's trying to serve this area. But priesthood or monkery and salvation aren't always synonymous. And you see this in the reformers as well. Um, Luther, uh, Zwingli, um, Wesley, the same. They're serving sometimes for years and doing uh, things uh, that they would see uh, in the kingdom unto the Lord in their service, but they're not, but they get converted actually years after they start this ministry. So that's, it's not uncommon for that to be the case. And that was the case with, Zwing, with Zwingli as well. Um, a, one, one scholar who, um, who studies Zwingli, he brings out a poem that Zwingli wrote that he feels probably came out of this time in Zurich where he was um, hit with this disease in, in his recovery. And this is what Zwingli writes. 
He says, Help me, O God, yet if thy voice, my strength and rock, and life's midday. Lo, a door recalls my soul. I hear death's knock, then I obey. Uplift thine arms in faith and hope. Once pierced for me, earth I resign, that conquered death secure in heaven, and set me free, for I am thine. So there seems to be, many scholars would say, a definite change in Zwingli during this time where he's sick. So he starts preaching verse by verse through the New Testament, but then he's, that same year, he's hit with this disease, and he's down for six months, and then out of that comes this poem. And so they would see this change in Zwingli and say that that's probably when he was truly converted. So after Zwingli preached through the Bible, he expounded what he saw in the text, um, even if it differed from the tradition of the Catholic Church, or the Roman Catholic Church. There's another picture of Zwingli, maybe. Um, so, so the effects of Zwingli's theology, which was beginning to sharpen and be reformed, started to show itself when some of his parishioners or his congregants defiled the church's rule about eating meat during Lent. So who knows what Lent is? What's that? 40 days right, 40 days leading up to Easter. Anybody else want to add something to that definition? We're supposed to sacrifice something during that time. Okay, so there's a, there's a, a sacrifice of something. Um, I, don't, he, I don't think he means a sacrifice of something literal like a bull or a goat, Not but like, like <laughs> within a, the life of the person. Like a fast yeah, yeah, person. a personal sacrifice. So I know some of you come from a um, Catholic background, so you probably know what Lent was. Um, the first time I heard Lent, I was working at Captain D's as a supervisor. Uh, Captain D's is like a Long John Silver's, this seafood restaurant. And it's just so weird. The first time I heard this word Lent, uh, a, a family came in to Captain D's and they said uh, they ordered like half the menu and it was just fish. And it was for us like a time where we made most of our money during the year during Lent. And they would say, it's Lent, it's Lent. And they're like, <laughs> what does that mean? But they would order all this fish, so we'd be packing fish and hush puppies and trays and serving it to all these people. And they were, I learned later that they were Catholic and they were um, celebrating Lent. But it was like they were saying, well, we don't want to eat uh, pork, we don't want to eat ribs, we don't want to eat this, we just want to eat fish. And that was the way that they um, um, celebrated Lent. So that was my first experience with Lent at a seafood restaurant because we made the most money during that time of year. So weird. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so in the Roman Catholic Church context, um, Lent comes from the word uh, Lenten, which means spring. So Lent, Lent or Lenten, the Lent or Lenten season was a time of fasting, um, repentance, and penitence. So it lasted 40 days, as our brother said, and it was from Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday, the uh, uh, day before Easter. So the 40 days represents actually the time that Jesus spent in the wilderness, enduring the temptation of Satan and preparing to begin his ministry. So that 
seems to be the connection with Lent in Christ. But back, back to Zwingli. Um, it was during Lent that some of his congregants again broke the rule of Lent and started to eat meat. And Zwingli, Zwingli actually supported them. And so he didn't see this Lent as a uh, biblical, biblically grounded uh, tradition. He saw it as man's tradition. And he had a view of Christian liberty in this area. So he basically said to his congregants, they say, hey, we're going to eat meat um, during Lent. And he basically said, eat and be well. Enjoy it. Enjoy your, your meat. Because, um, again, he saw this tradition as man-made. So not long after he started this series, uh, he started uh, his teaching and this sort of uh, issue with Lent and his congregants eating Lent, and specifically his congregation, which I think they're being affected by his teaching, Luther start, or not Luther, Zwingli starts these, uh, a series of Reformation writings that actually ended up circulating around Switzerland. So I'm assuming everyone has heard of Luther's 95 Theses. Have you heard of, raise your hand if you've heard of Luther's 95 Theses. Okay, leave it up. <laughs> Leave your hand up if you've heard of Zwingli's 67 Theses. <sighs> Shame. I'm just joking. I hadn't really heard of it until I started studying Zwingli. So um, apparently Zwingli, like Luther, um, put out 67 Theses, which he wrote in 1523, six years after Luther wrote his 95 Theses. So at this time, these two men had never met. And Zwingli would say he had never even heard of Luther when he put out these 67 theses. Again, the ways in which their uh, lives and some of the reformers are similar is just very interesting to me. And listen to this. This is what uh, was with, within Zwingli's 67 theses. He rejects a lot of the medieval beliefs. Some of those were um, forced fasting, forced fasting, clerical celibacy, which should sound familiar, Purgatory, the mass, and priestly meditation. Interesting. Not long after this, he started to question the use of images in church. And the city of Zurich, following Zwingli's reform, actually banned all religious images and then um, used within um, church, church worship. And so this reform was starting to happen in Zurich. And these images were moved actually from all of the churches. Um, tell me if this sounds familiar with of other reformers. Zwingli took his reform further when he married, and he married Anne Reinhardt. So why was marriage and the priesthood or monkhood a form of protest? Why was that uh, seen as uh, radical or a, a protest? Anybody? Right, right. So there was a vow of celibacy. So Zwingli, um, actually like Luther and Calvin, um, he, he marries and he marries Anne Reinhardt. I think I have a picture of Anne Reinhardt. There he is, reading to sweet Anne on their bed. Um, so Zwingli, he marries, and it's a form of a protest. Um, and <clears throat> so because uh, the priesthood and monasticism took vows of celibacy, 
this was, like Larry said, this was something that was a, a form of protest. And the Reformation, and as the Reformation started to develop theologically, they started to recognize that these traditions were wrong, but not just sort of bad ideas, uh, celibacy, vows of celibacy, but actually wicked. So taking a wife was to say that marriage is a good thing that God is pleased with, something he blesses, and to deny it or to require a vow of abstinence from marriage was sinful. Can I get an amen? Amen, amen brothers and sisters. Um, <laughs> it's amazing to me that the, the similarity, again, between Zwingli and Luther's reform. Two men in two different areas uh, with similar theological developments and practical implications of that theology, except for the issue of the Lord's Supper. So Zwingli was, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about this more next week, but the issue of the Lord's Supper was big in the life of Zwingli. Um, Zwingli uh, had more of a memorial view, memorial view merely uh, a commemoration with no necessarily present uh, graces given to the saint uh, by the spirit at that time, the time of them eating the Lord's Supper. And, but um, Luther was, in, in his understanding of the Lord's Supper, more uh, transubstantiational, I'm just gonna make that word up or add uh, all to it, Tran transubstantiational than we would probably be comfortable with. So uh, he would agree that both, uh, we would disagree with both of their views, which we'll talk about more next week, but that was one of the things in Zwingli's life that, was, that, became, that he became well, well known for, his, him and Luther sort of disagreeing on that. Um, in 1525, Zwingli's teaching had caused the city of Zurich to philosophically and theologically shift. The city had already banned the use of images in worship, um, now mass was officially abolished and Protestant worship services on the Lord's Day were the new standard of worship. So Zwingli's ecclesiology was one that said only what was taught in scripture was acceptable. He said anything that had no explicit scriptural um, evidence was to be rejected. The words of scripture were, led and, were read and preached in the language of the people and the entire congregation, not only the clergy, received both the bread and the wine in a simple communion service. So the ministers, as this reform is happening, it's having um, implications uh, within the, the local church. Uh, so these, these ministers within Zwingli's church, they're wearing robes like you would find in lecture halls at that time, rather than the robes that uh, will, will be worn at Catholic altars. So he's seeing that as needing to change. The veneration or worship of Mary and other saints was forbidden. Indulgences were banned and prayers for the dead were stopped. So by this time, it was almost a complete break from Rome, but it wasn't necessarily all peace from this point on. So Zwingli later, he, would, uh, him, he, he and Luther would meet and they would um, have a discussion on the Lord's Supper along with 14 other theological points. But prior to that, does anyone, anybody know what, what else, what other major controversy happened in Zwingli's life? So there were two primary major controversies. Um, one was Lord's Supper, presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and the other was what? Does anybody know? Yes. Um, yes, there you go. 
Anabaptist. That's what I was looking for, the word Anabaptist. We're going to talk about the Anabaptists a little bit. So Zwingli had controversy with a group called the Anabaptists, also called the Rebaptizers. <laughs> when I read the Thickering last night, she laughed when I said Rebaptizers. Because um, uh, Anabaptist means re-baptize, or to be baptized again. But before I continue, let me just say for the record, <laughs> we are not Anabaptists, okay? Um, we as Reformed Baptists or Particular Baptists are not Anabaptists. We're not Continental Anabaptists. We're not Evangelical Anabaptists. We're not even General Baptists. We are Particular Baptists, okay? I know when I first heard the term Anabaptist, I wondered what it meant and what it meant for me. Am I an Anabaptist? I said to myself, but not. <laughs> but it did, uh, it caused me to go and study when I heard it. I was like, oh snap, this is serious. But um, we as Reformed Baptists are not Anabaptists and our theological roots are not Anabaptistic. We could really spend a Sunday school class talking about <laughs> the Anabaptists and why we are not Anabaptists which would probably be, I, I would love that. Um, it is very interesting. <clears throat> but since that's not the focus of our study now, and I don't really have time to cover um, all of that, I'm just gonna say a couple of things that makes us distinct from Anabaptists. And I'm going here, again, because this was a major controversy in Zwingli's life, right? Uh, he had these issues with radical Anabaptists, okay? So a couple of things that sets us apart from the Anabaptists. There are a few, but just a couple. 16th century Anabaptists actually rejected the Reformed understanding of justification by faith alone. So they would deny the forensic or, well, let me, what, what do I mean when I say forensic justification? Legal definition. Legal, right. Forensic or legal nature of justification. I think we know what justification means. God, declaration of not guilty. They would deny the forensic nature of justification. Instead, they would say that the only ground on which sinners can be accepted by God is the real righteousness wrought within, notice, within the justified person. So, is the believer counted righteous on the basis of another, is the question, or is the believer made righteous in themselves and therefore justified. So are we uh, covered or uh, counted righteous on the basis of an, an alien righteousness, something outside of us, or does God make uh, the believer righteous and then on that basis justifies them? A type of infused righteousness. Right, a type of... Right, so I'm going to read from the Confession. I always, you, you know, we got to squeeze in the 1689, um, which is, again, what makes us distinct from Anabaptists. All right, so chapter 11, verse 1, on justification. I'm going to read, if I can find it. It says this. How much time do I have? Okay, got to hurry up. <clears throat> it says this. On justification, of, of justification, those whom God effectually calleth he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their pardons, their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them 
or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Again, or going on, it says, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's effective or active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness by faith. Which faith they have not of themselves, it is a gift of God. All right, so again, there's a distinction there. We're not, uh, we're not saying that uh, God, uh, he makes the person, the, the saint in and of themselves, he makes them righteous and then justifies them. He justifies them on the basis of the righteousness of another, Christ, right? So our standing before God alone is not our own uh, innate righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ, okay? So I hope that's clear. Okay, so from this point on, when I say Anabaptist, I mean radical Anabaptist, because there were radical and there were evangelical, but I mean radical Anabaptist. All right, so um, radical Anabaptists at this time were really radical revolutionaries. It's interesting because today they're pacifists, but at this time they were radical revolutionaries. Um, the, the, the radical Anabaptists didn't feel like Zwingli took his reform far enough. They would have said the same thing about Luther. They recognized the ways that Zwingli separated from the Roman Catholic Church, but they wanted the whole institution to be burned down, probably literally, through revolution. So as the reformers reformed via sola scriptura, um, using their pens and the word preached and taught by exposition, some wanted reform to look like immediate, physical, and violent reform if necessary. They were radicals, okay? Many well-known reformers and some of the most um, unknown but very important reformers, like uh, Bucer and others, weren't really seeking this great and glorious reform of the church in a way that sometimes I think we think they were. When reform did take place, it was slow, patient, and the transition was gradual. This was the case with Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, Martin Bucer. It was through study of the word that they saw that the church was departing and had departed from Sola Scriptura and wanted to call the church back. It was only as they recognized the depth of the wickedness and the abuses within the Roman Catholic Church that they saw it was necessary to reform and that the institution itself needed to be reformed. So it was like mixing bleach with water and trying to extract the bleach out of the water later on. It, it's, it's not going to happen. The, the corruption was so entwined within uh, the, the system, the institution, that reform was necessary. Cooperation would not work, okay? So Zwingli encouraged the Anabaptists to bear with the weaker brethren, and uh, he encouraged them uh, to bear with those who were slowly and gradually accepting the teachings of the, the Reformation. I, I remember reading um, about Martin Bucer, and he said within his church, as reform was happening, he worded it so uh, eloquently, but he said, if the Reformation was um, a medicine cabinet as opposed to opening the doors and dumping the medicine cabinet, dumping it on his congregation, he pulled the, the, the medicines of the Reformation down one by one and spoon-fed it to his congregation, lest they despise the very thing that they need, the Reformation. 
um, which was just, it's such a pastoral um, heart there. Um, I love that. But it's in, in the same way, I think uh, Zwingli, as he's um, reforming, is uh, warning the Anabaptists, look, take it easy. It, it doesn't happen in that, in that way. Um, so Zwingli is, so this all sort of comes to a head when the, uh, the, the council or the, 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 the papacy, some of those who were an authority in his area in Zurich, they sort of, in a show of muscle against Zurich, uh, against Zwingli, said, um, baptize all the infants. <laughs> Which is like, all right. <laughs> so Zwingli's teaching, and he's reforming, he's preaching the word, and um, there, again, the, the, the papacy or those in that area, as a show of muscle, they tell him to baptize all the infants. So he's sort of caught in the middle of this. You have uh, the papacy saying, baptize the infants. You're, you're not the one in power here. Uh, this reform will not be tolerated. Baptize them. Uh, Zwingli's sort of in the middle, and then you have the Anabaptists. They're saying, absolutely not. We will not be baptizing infants. Not only did they not baptize the infants, they started baptizing themselves and each other. Right? These um, radical Anabaptists. Yeah, 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 and any, right, it, it, was, it was treason, it was, it was um, a federal offense, so to speak. And so Zwing, Zwingli's in the middle, baptized them, we're not going to baptize them, so he's sort of dealing with this, uh, the, these, um, this rule of the papacy, and then he's dealing with the Anabaptists on the other side, and these things, it sort of comes to a head here when, unfortunately, um, while Zwingli's in the middle of this, uh, he... He, he doesn't baptize the infants, um, but the, the radical Anabaptists, or the leaders of the radical Anabaptists, um, and their show of muscle over and against the papacy are deemed, one, heretics, and two, um, leaders of a revolution. So this, their teaching was seen as revolutionary teaching and radical. And so unfortunately, some of the radical Anabaptists were put to death, and they put, to, put them to death by drowning. It was to, to mock them, really. <clears throat> right, so they, they put them to death by drowning. So we actually don't know whether Zwingli um, agreed to the death sentence, but we do know that he didn't oppose them. Right? <clears throat> so that was a, a major controversy in the, the life of Zwingli. A controversy for Zwingli continued when Martin Bucer, along with Melanchthon and other reformers, organized a meeting between Zwingli and Luther at the Marburg Colloquy. So they met to try to come to agreement on not just the Lord's Supper or the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but 15 theological points, one of which was, was the Lord's Supper. So they were, trying, they were going for, uh, men were trying to, uh, other reformers were trying to fashion uh, an agreement here on these things. But um, did they agree is the question. Some of you probably already know the answer to that. But for those who don't, you can come back next week and then we'll talk about whether they agree. You're probably going to go home and go on Google and find out and ruin my Sunday school class. But that's okay. Come back next week. I'm going to pray. That's all I have for this week. And we'll continue next week on the uh, conversation between... Yes, sir.